there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving with your family, or maybe you enjoyed a Friendsgiving instead. Whatever the case, I want to wish you and your loved ones a fantastic holiday weekend, and I hope you can use this time to rest and recharge before heading into the final weeks of 2018. And in the spirit of the holidays and giving thanks, I can't wait to introduce you to an incredibly special young woman who has dedicated her career thus far to trying to make the world a better place. She's so special, in fact, that I've actually been holding on to this interview for the last six months, waiting for just the right time to release it. She was among the first people I interviewed for Time for Coffee, which is why there isn't a live-to-tape introduction of her. Instead, I'm finally dropping the episode this week as I decided to feature people I'm thankful for, some really remarkable men and women who are out there every day doing incredible things with their talents. And if you're one of those who thinks you may be interested in getting into international development or the nonprofit space, then this is the episode for you. But before I introduce you to Rena Greifinger, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, giving you an overview of the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org, and it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, I invite you to scroll down a little bit to check out the dozens and dozens of other episodes of T4C with the dozens of amazing professionals in so many different career tracks. And they're all organized by career. So you can search for them based on the professions that most interest you. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful guest today is Rena Greifinger, who leads Maverick Next, an initiative of Population Services International, or PSI. Rena brings 15 years of experience leading programs to advance the sexual and reproductive health of girls and young people around the world. As PSI's Global Youth and Girls Advisor, she led the organization's work in design thinking and private sector approaches to adolescent health. Prior to PSI, Rena started Next Steps One Love Project, an award-winning program that builds leadership, life skills, and mentoring support for young people living with HIV in the U.S. Back when I interviewed Rena in the spring of 2018, I wasn't formally introducing my guests at the start of our interview. So this interview picks up with Rena explaining what she does as the head of PSI's truly unique program, Maverick Next, which is part of PSI's Maverick Collective. Maverick Collective is a collective of female philanthropists that are helping lift women and girls out of poverty by investing with PSI, our organization, and bringing their full selves, their full net worth, as we say, to the programs that they fund. And we help to build them up as advocates and influencers. Uh, We're 
co-chaired by Melinda Gates and the Crown Princess of Norway. And it's led by my boss, Kate Roberts. So we've got a, a really stacked bench, if you will, behind us. The program I'm building, and I'm building it from scratch and pretty new in the role, is to design what I'm calling a philanthropy accelerator for the next generation emerging leader in philanthropy. The young women who are now coming into their wealth, who are passionate about women and girls and about really learning how to become an effective steward of their resources over the course of their lives. And so we're designing a fellowship where they will join the Maverick Collective, give their money collectively, collaboratively to a program that PSI implements, and then go through a two-year learning journey on what it means to be a bold and creative advocate for change. So when you say they give their money collectively, is there a cohort that they're a part of? And then together they kind of pull their resources. Their re- yeah. I was thinking, you know, there are hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars yeah. to then go together. Yeah and invest in a particular project. Yes. So we bring on individuals, young women who make an investment of $280,000 over two years. We group them in an impact circle of five. So together they fund a million dollar program with PSI and the program will be focused on adolescent sexual and reproductive health, which is my area of expertise. They will come to the field twice over the course of the two years. They'll work hand in hand with our teams. We're curating this fellowship with the London School of Economics, where they will actually get a certification at the end. And so we'll be working in London together. We'll have retreats in D.C. They'll get to grow their network, learn all about international development, learn about human-centered design and program design and the way that our programs really run, and ultimately build partnerships with the people who are the boots on the ground in these programs and who are working in our headquarter office so that we can, as I said earlier, really break down the unequal power dynamic between donors and implementers, start off these partnerships between us and donors at an earlier age and allow them to really experience the work up close. How unusual is this? I I don't think I've ever heard of a program. First of all, I've never heard of one called a fellowship before. Yeah, it's really the first of its kind. There are philanthropy education programs out there, but they're not tied to the direct project work. So these guys get to invest in a project and then use that project as their learning tool throughout the two-year fellowship. And that's what makes it really unique. And of course, being backed by the Gates Foundation, who's funding the startup of this and PSI, they get this incredible as I said, kind of this stacked bench behind them to help them really kickstart their life of purpose with the hope that they will go on to just be stronger, bolder, more effective philanthropists over the course of their lives. So when you break down the functions of your job, you are designing, building and leading a program. Yes. So whatever this million dollars goes into, and and I'm guessing is, are there multiple million dollar programs? Yes. Okay. You're a technical advisor for these projects and you're a major donor fundraiser. Yes. How did you hone the skills that got you to this point? Do you feel, first of all, that you are entirely 100% competent in all three. You said that you're more of a technical wonky gal there. Do you feel like this is pushing you out of your comfort zone? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I'm very... (laughs) 
I'm feeling the anxiety just when you repeat back to me what my job is. Yeah. Um, I'm completely out of my comfort zone, which at times is some of the most, what invigorates me so much about it. And other moments is when I feel like this is going to be an epic failure and I should just start looking for another job right now. So believe me, the emotions are all over the place all the time, but I think all of it is what kind of keeps the fire under my bum, you know, to keep me going. I don't have, and I'm very transparent about this in in the world that I'm working in now, I don't have a lot of experience as a fundraiser and the philanthropy space is fairly new for me. I am learning so much as I go. And actually I'm finding that because I'm so curious and such a novice in the space of philanthropy, I'm like eating up every bit of information that I can get, you know, with gusto. I'm reading research reports. I'm listening to podcasts about philanthropy. I'm doing a ton of just direct insight gathering with philanthropists themselves, with the people that work in the philanthropy space. I'm like a sponge at the moment. And it's actually really exciting to be in that role, to be learning something again, pretty much from scratch. I'm so lucky to have a salary and and a support team that allows me to do that. But it is a little bit like being back in school or just taking on a whole new role in the world. and, And I'm enjoying it a lot. I have a public health background. I can talk more about that later, but the, the fundraising space is new and I'm learning every single day. You mentioned you feel like you're a sponge and you're back in school. When you went to the university of Michigan, first of all, what was your major? English, English literature. Did you know what you were going to do with it at the time? Did you have some thoughts? I had some thoughts. I majored in English, I'll say, because I loved to write and I loved to read and write. And I just thought if I get to read and write and get graded for it, I'll probably do pretty well. And I did. I had some idea of what I wanted to do. My parents both work in public health, which is pretty unusual. Most people have not even heard of public health, really. And I was told over and over again growing up that I could do well by doing good and that a life was successful when when it had purpose. You know, a successful life was a life of purpose. And so I was really told and guided and advised by my family to find my purpose or find a purpose that I could get excited about and to follow it. And again, had the support from them that the money would come, you know, and the the structure and job structure around it would come, but first go out and find what's important to me. So during college, while I was reading Moby Dick and writing essays, which I enjoyed, but it wasn't my passion, I took the opportunity to study abroad in Cape Town, South Africa, which was a little bit against the grain at the time. I mean, most of my friends were going to Europe. And I really wanted to, first of all, go somewhere beautiful. And Cape Town is incredibly beautiful. And I wanted to learn how to surf, which I never did. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> but I had the dream of being like this total surfer girl. But I also was really interested in the AIDS epidemic. My father, working in prisons at the time, was an AIDS expert and kind of talked a lot about the epidemic at home. And it resonated with me for one reason or another. And I thought, why? don't I go to the heart of it? So even during college, I certainly had an inkling that this was an issue that I wanted to see up close and learn more about and possibly work in. It wasn't until I went and had that experience and got involved in my first 
real activist pursuits that I got hooked and realized that this actually was my purpose and something I wanted to follow. But I certainly at least had the inkling about it because I decided to go. So what was the program that you were a part of when you were in Cape Town? The University of Michigan didn't have a direct program, but I went through another university and usually with study abroad, honestly don't remember exactly, but with study abroad, you can find a university program in almost any city in the world and then transfer your credits from that university over to yours so that you can keep up with your studies. So I studied at the University of Cape Town and I lived with a big group of students from all over the world and had one of the most transformative experiences of my life. I was not only studying, I was volunteering in a township with HIV positive families. And I was working with the South African Red Cross where they did support groups every week for these families. I didn't speak the local language, so I couldn't contribute very much. So I ended up just playing with the children, kind of looking after the children while their parents were in the support group. And, you know, again, I wasn't really building a skill set. I was just literally driving my really beat up old car that I'd bought for $500 when I got there, which was a taxi. It was a taxi cab, by the way. So it had like taxi written on the side. Did you have people it was trying to stop always, you? people were always trying to hail me in the street. It was like this 1988 Nissan Maxima. And I would drive it into Kyalicha every week and sit out in a, you know, on kind of a patch of dirt with a bunch of children and play with them and draw pictures and play ball. And you know, we didn't speak the same language, but with children, you don't need to. And I did it every single week. And I just witnessed, I just witnessed life in this township. I sat in these support group meetings, even though I didn't understand what was being said. And it was amazing. I just had a very, very impactful experience. And at the time, there was no HIV drugs in South Africa at this time. So people were, this was 2003, people were dying left and right. And there was a lot of activism there to to try and get universal access to treatment in the country. And so I started to go to protests and rallies. So the first time I'd ever been to a protest in my life was in Cape Town. And I remember, you know, marching through the streets of Cape Town, kind of surrounded by people mostly who, you know, look nothing like me and come from extremely different backgrounds than I do. And if you ever get to go to a protest in South Africa, probably most parts of Africa, I really encourage it because in, in South Africa, they don't yell and scream, they sing. And so I remember I was 20 years old. I'm walking through the streets of Cape Town and everyone is singing in what sounded like perfect harmony. And they're singing these songs of freedom and justice from the apartheid time. And I remember it was the first moment that I really felt part of something that was much bigger than myself and my little life. And it was that moment. I, I can really pinpoint it when I truly realized that there was this activist within and that this was something that I wanted to try to, this feeling I wanted to have of being part of something bigger as much as I possibly could. And from that moment on, I went to like every protest I could find in Cape Town that, that semester, you know, we were protesting the Iraq war, we were protesting. And I remember calling my mom and telling her that I was going to get arrested for civil disobedience. <laughs> and she said, 
please come back home and get arrested here. I will let you get arrested in New York. I will bail you out, but please don't get arrested in South Africa. So I didn't, but, but I was really switched on. I hadn't done much in college at the time around volunteerism or, you know, I was focused on studies and partying. But when I got back from South Africa, my final year at Michigan, I really threw myself into various volunteer efforts and just more kind of social justice efforts that my parents had done all this stuff, but I hadn't been personally switched on till then. So that's when I started working in a shelter for domestic violence survivors. I started to volunteer at camps every summer for children living with HIV. And that kind of, that really was the beginning of all of this for me. So what did you do when you graduated? When I graduated, I spent a summer in Boulder with my then boyfriend, and then I was ready for an adventure. I had a little money and savings, and I was not ready to just get a job. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I wanted to keep exploring the world. I mean, going to South Africa really, really turned me on to travel. I was totally (laughs) bitten by the travel bug. I went to Buenos Aires. And honestly, it was like all on a whim. I knew I wanted to be in a Spanish speaking country because I'd taken Spanish throughout school and I wanted to improve my Spanish skills. And I knew that that could help me in life. I found a program where you take Spanish classes and live with a family for a month or so to get that immersive experience. And I thought, okay, that feels like a soft landing. So I signed up and I went and met my now husband (laughs) three days in. And we could talk about that later. Um, But really just kind of started to get involved in my, in the community in Buenos Aires that I was in. I found a volunteer position with a home for orphans and was volunteering and learning Spanish and, and traveling and hanging out and partying. I mean, people always ask me, I'm like, I'm happy to be very transparent. I was having the time of my life. (laughs) The skills I was building were the more kind of inherent, like I can travel on my own. I can live independently. I was building resilience and grit and resourcefulness and communication skills. None of this would go on a typical resume. So you moved to London and you get a job working for body and soul. What's that? Okay. That didn't happen right away though. Oh, it didn't? No. So when I went to London to follow this guy and same guy from Argentina, same guy I married. So nothing too surprising there. But when I got to London, I didn't have a job yet. Again, I was kind of like, I'm following my heart. I'm going to go and see about this guy and I'll figure out the job thing later. I admit it was at a time where it was a little easier to get work permits cross country, which I know is a lot harder to do now. So I had that that was lucky. But when I got to London, I got a job working in a pub where I could just earn some money because that was a bit easier to do then too. And I started really putting myself out there to find at least a place where I could start volunteering in this space that I was interested in, which I was still really interested in HIV and young people. I applied for a million jobs in London with various NGOs, got like almost no callbacks. I mean, nobody was interested mostly because I was foreign and they would have to get me a work permit, but also I was young and completely inexperienced. I worked with the couple networks I had. It wasn't much. I think I had a family friend who lived in London, who knew a few people, who put me in touch with a few people. And I realized very early on the power of networking and of, you know, being very persistent not annoying, but persistent in following up with people that I'm introduced to because you never know who can open up doors for you. I found Body and Soul, this 
charity there that works with teens living with HIV. And I must have called them every single day for three weeks asking if I could just come in and volunteer. When you say you must have called them every single day, like you would like, just say hi. I called them on the telephone. Rena, yes. I'm calling again. I'm really serious. I want to work for you for free. Yes. And half the time I was leaving messages because they were off doing their work and they were a tiny, scrappy, tiny, scrappy NGO at the time. But I called and called and called and emailed and emailed and finally got through and finally got to come in and meet them and talk to them and let them know that I was just deeply interested in learning and that all I wanted to do was learn from them, share the skills and energy that I had, whatever I could do, and that I was willing to do it for free. And they they let me come. I started volunteering with Body and Soul. I showed up every day, even if they didn't have things for me to do. I showed up every single day and sat at a desk and created work where I could and put myself out there to do things that maybe other people didn't want to do or didn't have time to do. For example... For example, it was a direct service organization. So they ran, they still do, they run support groups and various health programming for teens and and adults and families living with HIV and other at-risk youth. They didn't have time to do like advocacy work, to go to the politicians, the kind of local level politicians and do the kind of the grinding grunt work of just trying to get in front of politicians and go to stakeholder meetings and advocate for the needs of our population. It just wasn't a scrappy direct service organization, not what they could do. So I said, I'll go not knowing a thing about advocacy or a thing about UK advocacy for that matter. But I was a body that we could at least put in the room at these meetings. So I started to go around to all of these like local government meetings and coalition meetings and then moved my way up to the all parliamentary group on AIDS and just kind of represented body and soul, learned a ton, started to build a little reputation among these folks because I would ask a lot of questions and provoke a little bit. And soon enough, Body and Soul offered me a work visa and offered me a salaried position. And we went through all the paperwork and I got to then come on as the policy and advocacy advisor for the organization. So you didn't have to bartend anymore. I did not. Even though I have to say that was also a very important experience, I thought, in learning about a new culture is go and work behind a bar and talk to people all day. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. That was really my first real job um, was at Body and Soul. And I stayed for another two years. I did the volunteer thing for about a year, stayed another almost two years on and did a bit of everything. Because when you work for a small more community-based organization, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what job you come in with, you end up getting to do everything. And really, I really hate this term, but punch above your weight. You get to take on roles and challenges that just would not be available to you in a larger organization. So do you actually advise people to go the local community NGO route if you're interested in exploring this field? I do. And I do that for a few reasons. And of course, this was my journey. And so I can only speak from my own success and experience with it. But joining Body and Soul, first of all, as I said, you take on roles that are just far more senior and challenging, but you are the only one there to do it. And so you do it and you cannot tell you how much you learn by just diving in and doing it. And of course, messing up, but the growth is exponential. But secondly, when you work with a community-based organization, particularly if you're interested in public health or international development, 
getting to work directly with the end user, the consumer, the beneficiary, whatever you call them, getting to work directly with them day to day, getting to work directly with the people who are your boots on the ground. And I'm talking about, in this case, social workers, case managers, nurses, the people that are doing the really day-to-day, very hard work with the people that we're trying to serve. It's those people that I think I've learned the most from in terms of then taking it as I've grown in seniority and pulled away from the direct consumer day-to-day work. It's that that I have like held onto and that I can, that I revisit as I make decisions about programs. And as I Make you can sure. kind of hear their voices. I can in your hear ears. their voices. Yeah. It helps me keep them at the center of what we do rather than than ourselves. I think it's just invaluable to be able to work directly with communities and with the community influencers around those people, whether you're doing it right here in the US in your own backyard or in some far flung place. But the only way that you can be a great politician, a great activist, a great NGO leader whoever is to have been there kind of in the trenches doing the work. How did you make the decision about getting your master's in public health? I always knew that I wanted to get a master's and it became pretty clear to me while I was at Body and Soul that to to really advance or to do something else, I probably should go back and get and get that degree. And not so much because it looks good on paper, although admittedly, it it really absolutely helps in this world now. But also because I knew that I was a bit flying by the seat of my pants in that job. And again, it was great, unbelievable experience, but I realized I needed to really understand the theories and the evidence base and the frameworks behind the work that we were doing. And that if I wanted to take my career to the next level, I needed to get that grounding. There's like a fine line between fake it until you make it. Yeah. And then like you can continue down that route, but it must have given you so much more confidence after you got your, your master's. Definitely. Two things I would say. One is I thought it was invaluable for me to have the work experience before getting the master's. And oftentimes I'm asked by college grads, whether they should go directly into a master's program or not. My master's program actually required two years of work experience before coming in. And I usually advise get that work experience. And if you can get that real on the ground in the trenches, community-based work experience, if you're going into my field, so you can put it in perspective so that you have something to apply all of that theory too, so that it doesn't feel so hypothetical because sometimes when you go into a school setting and you're reading case studies and talking theories, it feels hypothetical, which is okay. As long as you've got something to ground it in, that's real. And that's what I did. And I went to a wonderful university that is very focused on research and evidence and theory. And I chose that actually, rather than having a degree program that was more practice-based because I knew I'd get the practice by doing it. And so, and you went, we should say you went to Harvard, which is obviously um, one of the top schools that you could go to for this. Was it the experience that you hoped it would be? Yes. I'm sure there were things I would change about it. Of course, nothing is perfect. I went to Harvard for a few reasons and I, and trust me, it wasn't just because it's a great name, although of course it helps 
especially when you're working in an international field where it is internationally recognized. But honestly, what I knew that I would get at Harvard, what everybody had told me was that you get this incredible network of peers who, and professors, but more your peers who you are learning with and working on projects with every single day and who will all go out into the world and many of whom will do very incredible, very important things. And building that network when you're young and in a learning environment is amazing and has absolutely benefited me. I also really did get a very deep understanding of behavioral theory, which has helped me a lot in terms of how I design programs for people and in research and in really understanding the power and importance of research and how to use research to design programs. I'm not a researcher, although I've worked on research, but it's not, again, it wasn't the path I wanted to take, but I needed to be able to really appreciate it and and understand it. So you stayed in Boston after you graduated, after you got your master's and you worked for the Harvard School of Public Health. Why, Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that path? So actually, I'm going to take one step back because the, these two experiences are combined. While I was doing my master's, I decided to spend a summer in Geneva interning at the World Health Organization. And I only was able to do that because it sounds very impressive, doesn't it? Um, I'm impressed. <laughs> I kind of landed that because when I was in London, I had communicated very briefly with someone at the World Health Organization who worked on adolescence and HIV. So I remembered his name. That was really about it. When I was into my first year of my master's, I thought this would be a cool thing to do. Let me get the WHO on my resume, right? So I reached out to him. He barely knew me. I mean, we'd traded one email while I was in London, but I reached out to him and I said, I'm really interested in an internship. Do you have anything going on this summer that I could take part in? And he said, as a matter of fact, I do. I want to do a qualitative report on the psychosocial needs of adolescents living with HIV. Why don't you come and run it with me? I, again, very privileged. I was not getting paid for this internship. I paid my own way. Living in Geneva is pretty expensive. I lived in very, very modest student housing for two months, but I got myself, I just kind of got myself this position at WHO for the summer and was working for a guy who was way too busy to actually work on this report with me. So it was really all me. And that was also like a really nice moment to be challenged with something that I'd never done before and to just dive in and do it. So I conducted a global qualitative study and wrote a really nice report on, you know, how we need to create leadership programs for young people living with HIV and here are the different ways we need to listen to young people. And, you know, I had beautiful recommendations as a nice WHO report does. And I finished that report, got it published in a journal and then thought, oh my God, this is going to sit on the shelf and nobody's going to pay attention to it. Cause isn't that what happens with most of these? And I really wanted to see if those recommendations that I had made actually worked in real life. So I went back to Boston and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to try this with some local organizations here. And I started to talk to 
organizations in Boston that work with teens living with HIV found that there wasn't a lot out there for them. In terms of like in terms of support, in terms of that, there wasn't um, a lot just for these teens, these youth that they. Uh, oh, I see. That yeah, there was there, a void. There was yeah, there was a void in programming, and that there wasn't an opportunity for them to come together and really learn about how to transition to adulthood, living with this disease, and how to take care of themselves and navigate the complex world of being a teenager, young adult in general, right? sex, school, relationships, family, income, and then on top of it, having this, you know, very serious illness that is completely stigmatized and which most of them are living in total silence about. So I, I did a ton of networking in my first few months back. I used that report as my kind of leverage, like, hey, I published this report. I have these really strong recommendations for what we can do. Let's get together and put it in action. And I fundraised and... How the heck did you do that? Oh my God. Uh, uh, Just a lot of blood, sweat and tears that year. So I found a fiduciary sponsor at the Boston Medical Center who kind of allowed me to fundraise within their their structure so I didn't have to start a new NGO. And what I was raising money for was a one-week conference for young people living with HIV. And I wrote like a thousand grant applications, barely, I think one of which came through. I mean, I remember crying my eyes out when my first grant application that I ever wrote was denied. And now I think back on like the thousands that I've written and have been rejected since. And it's like, wow, I'm really glad I stopped taking each one so personally or I would be like a total mess. But I wrote tons of grant applications. I did a lot of individual, you know, networking with individuals. I went to the State Department of Health over and over asking for money and finally was able to cobble together. I mean, family, friends, some state money, a little grant money, some wonderful individual support, cobbled together what I think was about $30,000 at the time to run this one week program. And we brought young people in to design the program. And and I found this amazing organization, Next Step, to help me run the program. And we ran this incredible week-long conference for teens living with HIV. And I thought in that, you know, in the moment, I thought, great, like we've done it. Mission accomplished. I even got an award for it at school upon graduation. And then it was like, oh, wait, the teens keep asking, what about next year? Right? Oh, and what about the rest of the year? And oh, this isn't just a one-off program. And so... Anyway, to cut a long story short, the program is called the One Love Project and the organization Next Step that I had hired to kind of help me run the one week conference. Actually, we negotiated together and they took on the One Love Project as a an, a continuous program of their organization. And it, to this day, we're, gosh, um, nine years later, One Love Project is still going strong at Next Step. I am now on the board of Next Step and it is a year round program for teens living with HIV. Can I just say like going back to how we began this conversation and your very humbly and candidly sharing your trepidation about your current role with Maverick Next holy cow, (laughs) you've done this. You are a maverick. Oh, thank you. Thank you. At times I do lean back on that. And I say, I've done this. I have built something before. 
I've scraped something together and turned it into something amazing. And hey, you can do a lot with $30,000. You can do a lot with $1,000, which is a really different perspective. And it's actually a very great perspective to have, having literally given blood, sweat, and tears to get a $5,000 grant. Having that experience as I go into now my work where I'm trying to raise millions of dollars for a $700 million organization, I am so glad that I've been on the other end of the spectrum because I know the value of a dollar for the type of work that we do. I still have moments every single day where I think this is going to be an epic failure. I can't, or that I'm like a total imposter, you know, or that I'm still faking it. But you have to lean on your your experience and your and the people around you. Would you describe yourself as an extrovert? Yes, very much. So what happens for those who aren't and for whom cold calling or emailing a guy that you met once would seem just even more terrifying? It's a really good question. And this is something I think about a lot right now as I am building a team and moving soon into management. And just what I've learned so much over the years is that to really build a successful initiative to really solve any problem, it takes a team. It takes people of all kinds that come together and bring their various perspectives and talents and powers to that problem or to that initiative. So Just as much as my being an extrovert has helped me in the networking side of what I do, I need an introvert by my side who is going to do the stop, pause and think before you talk. The, you know, really working on the internal capabilities of what we're trying to build I think if you are an introvert and it is not your superpower to be out there networking and schmoozing, find a really strong partner whose it is and work together because none of us can do this on our own. I mean, none of, none of my accomplishments have, have happened on my own. It just took me a while to realize that I could be more intentional about who I chose as my partners. And it's not always just people like you, but really people who fill the gaps that you have in terms of whether it's your talent skill set or your personality type. So I would say if you are an extrovert, go find an introvert. If you are, you know, an incredible researcher statistician, then go find yourself a, a program designer and implementer. It takes all of us to do it. So partner up. Now you have done work both domestically, like the work that you did in, in London, mm-hmm. and obviously now you're working for, and in Boston, mm-hmm. of course, and now, you know, you work for, for PSI, which is doing international development. What do you tell young people who come to you and say, like, which, which direction should I go in? I guess I don't really, I, what I say is I don't think it matters. <laughs> When I was working in Boston and coming out of school and even moving to DC, I was desperate to stay in the domestic space. I had no interest working internationally anymore. And I thought, I've got to solve the problems at home. You know, how can I even be thinking about other countries if I'm not solving the problem at home first? And for one reason or another, that didn't happen. And I got the job with PSI because before Maverick Collective, I was at PSI for five years as our global youth and girls advisor. So I've been at PSI six years now. 
I'm the first to admit that I was reluctantly, reluctantly took that job with PSI because I so badly thought I wanted to work domestically. And then I realized pretty quickly. And what helped me even say yes to the job was look at just the job that I get to do and look at the people that I get to work with. And it actually doesn't matter that I'm working internationally versus domestically. These are global problems that take global solutions and our world is not actually siloed that way anymore. And if it, what was most important to me was what I got to do day to day and the types of people and the people that I got to work around. And it suddenly just didn't matter anymore. Sure. My life was a bit different. I was traveling more internationally, which has its high points and its lows. And that is a life choice that you need to make. and, And it does affect your life. But I also realized that working for a big NGO that works internationally would have probably very similar challenges as working with an NGO domestically when it comes to donors and bureaucracies and governments. And I don't actually think they're all very different. And I think if you can get a job that you like, that you're excited about and to work with people you're excited about, it doesn't matter. And and the skills and experiences are very transferable. Finally, what advice would you have wish that you could have given your younger self, especially when you were in college, that now you have the deeper wisdom that if only you could have like had someone whisper it into your ear would have helped. I went to University of Michigan, which has always been known for like sparking movements and activism. It's a very, there's a lot of history of activism at that school. And I, I think I came into that world, not late, but late in certainly in my college career. And I wish that I had taken part in on-campus movements and activism throughout my time there. I think I missed, missed some great opportunities to do that and to just get more involved in this kind of social movement side of what was happening and college campuses are so amazing for that. And I think that we're seeing this incredible uptick in youth movements right now, obviously around gun violence and the evolution of the women's movement is drawing more and more young people in and not just college kids, high school kids. And for reasons that are tragic, but, but also this is what's so hopeful to me is that young people are getting involved in activism a lot earlier in life. And I kind of wish I had and taken advantage of the platform that universities bring to do that. I think one other thing I would do is probably reach out and engage more deeply with a more diverse set of peers while I was at college. I think I went to Michigan's a huge school. And sometimes actually at the bigger schools, you can find yourself to a much more tight knit group of people that are like you. And that was very comfortable to me in my, you know, late teens, early twenties. And if I could go back, I would have, I would tell myself to stretch much further and really befriend and engage with people who are not like me and did not come from the backgrounds that I came from. Because we, we know, I know now, like with the wisdom that I've built and the national conversation taking place about how important it is to do that and to really have true empathy and to really listen and to witness and to take part in the lives of people who don't have the same background as you is so incredibly important for your own personal development, but also for like society. So I wish I'd done that more because again, it, it was all right there in front of me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. 
I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.